0: we're going to be carrying on in this summer series, Transformed. And uh, really, that is a series that's based on the the idea that there is infinitely more to the Christian life than merely that it starts and ends, okay? We believe that the Christian life starts when you become a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, and that's quite a big moment in the Christian life. And then we believe that the, the Christian life, in a sense, ends when we go to be with Jesus and in in one way it goes on forever doesn't it but we believe that the start and the end are not the only bits where god wants to do something in the middle in your life in your lived experience here in your days on earth god wants to transform you he wants to come into your life and free you and and grow you and 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 let you be everything that you were made to be and do that very genuinely he wants to do it slowly Some of you know the pain of slow transformation and like year after year, you're like, oh, it's slow, but it's real and it's genuine. And bit by bit, he wants to transform us. And if we want to be a a church, which I think we do, um, that transforms or sees our city transformed for God in a very real sense, that starts with us. God transforms people through transformed people. I was reading this week a story of a, uh, an evangelist, and I'm going to say that his name is Gypsy Smith. That's what it said in the book. Is that, is that a person? Never heard of him. Uh, is, it a, is, it a, is it a bloke? Yeah, never heard of Gypsy Smith. Um, but Gypsy Smith was asked the question, what is the key to revival? Okay, what's the secret? You know, is it the right song or the right preacher? And Gypsy Smith said this, that the key to revival was to kneel down on your knees and get a piece of chalk, and draw a circle around you, and not get up until everything in that circle had been revived. I thought, wow, that is a challenge. We want to see revival. We need to see revival in us. And that's what this series is all about. How can we be revived? How can we be transformed? And the verse that's kind of inspired it all, this verse that you might know well in Romans 12, where Paul, this guy writing this letter, gives a command and he says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. I think it's very kind of him to make it rhyme in English when it was translated. I'm sure that was deliberate. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Don't just be the same as everyone else. You are a Christian. You're a child of God. Don't just be conformed to the world. In how you use your money and how you respond in pressure, don't be conformed to the world don't just be called a Christian but look like everyone else, be transformed, be different, let God work in you. And uh, that's what we're going to have a look at today is how can we not be conformed but be transformed. Uh, those of you who've been around will know we've been looking at a series of negative character traits and we're to go from one thing to another. So we looked at uh, from exhaustion to rest, I think. We've looked at Help me. Judgment, from judgment to generosity. And today we're looking at from pride to humility. How can we go from being proud people to being genuinely humble? Are you up for that? I mean, we're doing it. So that's what we're doing. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to uh, spot that uh, uh, pride is an extremely ugly thing. Just stick this uh, picture up. Uh, this is, uh, went viral a few American presidential campaigns ago. Uh, it seems to denote, though of course you don't know what's going on around the picture, it seems to denote Mitt Romney arrogantly sitting there while someone polishes his feet. And uh, it seems to denote Barack Obama, you can't quite see it, fist bumping a cleaner. And this went viral because it seemed to capture, and of course you don't know what's going on outside of the picture, it seemed to capture a proud leader and a humble leader. And the proud leader seemingly was to be uh, not liked, though it's funny how that's gone in the States. And the humble leader was seemingly to be revered and admired. Okay, But even if you're not a Christian, you can spot that. But as a Christian, you have every reason to, to want to become genuinely humble. Because in a sense, to be humble is really the whole of discipleship. It's the whole of the Christian life in a sense. Do you remember John the Baptist, what he cried out when he saw his cousin Jesus at the start of Jesus' ministry? He said this, he said, uh, he, that's Jesus, must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. Really, if you could sum up the Christian life in one sentence, that'd do that Jesus would become more and more, that I would live not so consumed with how I'm coming across and my hopes and my dreams and my ambitions and my reputation, but I would live and you would live and we would live consumed with how he's coming across and his hopes and his dreams and his ambitions and his reputation. He must become greater. I must become less. That's a prayer for humility. Now, how do we get to be the sort of people that genuinely pray and genuinely live like Jesus is everything and we just want to shrink. We just want to shrink into the background. How do we become humble people? Uh, That's what I want us to look at for the rest of the morning. And how it's going to work is I'm going to introduce you to three flavors of pride, okay? Three different ways that pride gets into me and gets into us. And what I want to do for each of them is I want to try and see how it is that we can become humble, become freed from those elements, those types of pride. And in a way, God has to do that, right? God has to humble us. You know, if we go around saying, oh, I'm going to make myself really humble because I'm great at being humble, that would be slightly ironic. In a sense, God has to humble us. It says, doesn't it, in the Bible that that he, he lifts up the lowly and he brings down the proud. So he needs to do that. In another sense, it is actually on us. Many times in the New Testament, it says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Take steps to genuinely seek to become humble. You, in a sense, you have some agency over that. You can deliberately, consciously seek to become humble. And that's what I want us to look at. So, three flavors of pride. Ready? Ready? Thank you. Flavor of pride, number one, I'm going to call this arrogant self-assessment. Okay, And this, if, you, if, you, if you're into your flavors, this is like the ready salted of pride. Okay, This is classic pride, easily recognizable pride, easily distinguishable pride, really ugly pride, arrogant self-assessment. And this is essentially where you or I, we big ourselves up and we think that we are better than we really are. We're a bigger deal than we really are, okay? Uh, Just after Paul has said this, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Very good. He says this in verse 3 of Romans 12. He says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. Now, anyone heard of uh, this guy? Let's stick the picture up. Uh, Anyone know who that is? Any football fans in the room? The projector is letting you down and seemingly your football knowledge as well. Let me uh, inform you, this here is Nicholas Bentner. Nicholas Bentner is uh, a slightly aging footballer. I looked him up on Wikipedia. He should have retired a long time ago. Incredibly, he is yet to retire. But uh, some poor team in Denmark is still getting his services. He was a very average footballer. He uh, played for Denmark internationally, which, as I say, I've not, I've not done for various reasons. So I'm not knocking him. He did quite well. Um, and he played for Arsenal. But he was mostly a sub, okay, to kind of come in every now and again when they were really struggling and had loads of injuries. That was Nicholas Bentner's role. Um, but more than his kind of average football career, what he's known for in football circles is a series of absolutely ridiculously arrogant statements that he would make about himself, Um, particularly when it was transfer window and he was jostling for a move and he didn't want to be on Arsenal's subs bench anymore. He would come out with these phenomenally outlandish statements about himself, as if, you know, Barcelona are just looking for players who announce themselves that they are good. He said this about himself. Let's stick it up. I might not be able to read it. But he says, if you ask me if I'm one of the best strikers in the world, I say yes because I believe it. He was not the best striker on the Arsenal substitutes bench, let alone the world. And uh, do you know what? It'd be fair enough for Lionel Messi to say that about himself. It'd be fair enough for Cristiano Ronaldo to say that about himself. The ridiculousness of this statement is in how Utterly deluded he was about himself, and everybody else could see that he was m- totally misassessing where he was, how he was getting on in world football, but he thought he was the best. And uh, what Paul is saying is, don't let yourself be like Nicholas Bentner. <laughs> don't let yourself spiritually get deluded about how you're getting on. Don't think that you are on Christianity Advanced. Everyone else is on Christianity Explored or Christianity in by the skin of your teeth. Whoa, but, the, you know, the real, the real, the real crew. You know, I'm just absolutely nailing it. Don't let yourself get like that, he says. Now, how would you know if this sort of pride is uh, an issue for you? I guess most of you are not putting out uh, positive football-related press releases about yourself, but how would you know if you struggled with this, if I struggled with this? Just a couple of ways. Uh, Firstly, if you struggle with this sort of pride, we presume that we rarely need help. Uh, John Mark Homer, who's a preacher in the States, says this, if you think you've arrived, you'll never ask for directions. And that is very true on a journey. Uh, That is very, very true spiritually as well. That if you believe that you are the big deal, then you will very rarely invite input and ask for help. So just have a think about that in your own life. Are you someone who regularly invites input? Uh, Another way that you'd spot if you struggled with this type of pride is that we'll be very, very harsh on other people's errors and very, very blind to our own. Uh, Anyone know the story? It's story time now, okay? Anyone know the story of uh, David and Bathsheba in the Old Testament? Uh, It's like... Game of Thrones and some, uh, I'll just give you the the highlights. David is the king. He's not just any king, he's God's king. He's God's spirit-drenched king. He's meant to be a visual representation of God on earth. And whilst he's meant to be doing that, he essentially sexually assaults someone, gets her pregnant, and then to cover up the sin, orders for someone to be killed. So that's your your God's king moment from David. It's an appalling moment in the Bible. It is a dreadful scandal in the Bible. And uh, what happens is God doesn't want to just leave him. Uh, God wants to transform us, which is very good of him. And God sends this guy Nathan to David. Any of you know the story, know this bit? So this guy Nathan comes to David, and instead of just saying, David, you're a terrible human, repent, which might have been effective in some senses, he comes to him and he himself tells a story. And he says, hey, David, let me just tell you this story. There's this guy, right, who's really rich, and he stole and killed a sheep, right? What do you think about that? And David, who has just committed appalling sin, criminal acts against image bearers of God, Here's a story, a fictional story, about someone who killed a sheep. Now look, vegans, I'm with you all the way. But the degree of evil there is different. And David hears about sheep killer, and he says this. He says in 2 Samuel 12, David was furious. And he said this, As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He is so harsh on someone else's lesser sin and totally misses his own total need of repentance. And proud people all the time, everywhere, do the same, don't we? We hear of other people's sins and we we, we pretty much eye roll, oh she did it again. <laughs> oh, did you see what he's like? cut, Tut. And yet we totally, what does Jesus say? We spot the little dust speck in someone else's eye. And you've got a big old weeping willow sticking out of your face and you don't see it. That's what a proud person does. Now, it's an amazing moment in verse 7 of that uh, chapter in uh, 2 Samuel where uh, Nathan says to David, Hey, David, you are that man. It's you I'm talking about. You know, the, the male with privilege and power who I told you about. Who, who who hurts something innocent and spotless and then kills something for no reason. You are that man, David. It's you. And in an amazing moment of not being conformed but being transformed, David doesn't let that crush him. He repents. He says, okay, I'm not getting up until everything in this circle has been revived. God, I'm sorry. I've fallen off. Oh, God, change me. Search me. Know me. And he writes the best chapter on forgiveness in the whole book so God can absolutely transform you even in that level of blindness and pride. But had Nathan not come in and had a little word with him, King David, God's guy, would have thought he was better than someone who nicks a sheep after all of that sin. Now, how do we grow if we struggle with this? How do we actually take steps forward? Here's a couple of suggestions. Uh, firstly, can I encourage you, as Sanju's already helped us to do, to reflect on the cross. If you arrogantly self-assess, get yourself in the shadow of the cross of Jesus. If you struggle to assess accurately what you deserve in life, get into the foot of the cross and look up at King Jesus, the real spirit-drenched king who shows us what God's like, bleeding and see that's what it cost God to save you. Do you want a little CV of how you're really, really placed in the world if it wasn't for the grace of God? It cost heaven, the son of God, to save you. We were not able to be saved by a sprinkle of religion We had to have the second person of the Trinity murdered for us. How could we be lofty? How could we arrogantly self-assess? Does it say in Isaiah, Uh, the punishment that was for our iniquities was on him. He was crushed for our transgressions. The cross tells you that you must not think you're a big shot. You really mustn't. I really mustn't. It says in Ephesians 2, that God saved you by his grace. You know these truths that we that become cold to us because we've heard them a lot. God, would you just bring this verse of the Bible to us with power now? God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. You've got to get in the foot of the cross if you're prone to pride. Second thing I want to dare you to do, and I've done this since preparing this talk, and it continues to be a deeply uncomfortable reality that I've done this, but a greatly helpful one. Invite a trusted Christian to tell you your blind spots. Get a Nathan in front of you talking to you accurately about yourself. That is a very brave thing to do. And if, as I really often am, if you're insecure, you would never dare to do that because someone might just burst your bubble a bit. But if you can dare to find the courage to just invite that input, what a tool, what a way God might grow you. Uh, Ask someone these sorts of questions. What do you see in my life that I don't see? How do you or others experience me? What am I missing? What's my weeping willow that you see and I don't see? Where do I need to grow? Well, as I say, it might be a very hard thing to do. It's a wonderful way to genuinely seek to be transformed. Can I encourage you? Can I dare you to ask that question of someone? Now uh, that's um, we're 18 minutes in, and that's one flavor of prize. Um, and you might feel that's enough uh, challenge. And feeling a little tiny bit convicted, maybe, but we're going to go two more before we're done. Is that okay? Here's the second flavor of pride. Self-loathing is the second flavor of pride I want to talk about. We can assume that the antidote to arrogance, where we go, I'm the best thing in the world, aren't they lucky to have me, is to self-loathe. And instead, to change our inner narrative to I am the worst thing in the world. God bless them for having to put up with me. I'm not. I'm worthless, I could do nothing, I have nothing to contribute. Oh, I'm such a disgusting mess and we fixate on our flaws in every moment. Is that humility? Now here's the thing, what does self-worship and self-loathing have in common? Self, self-worship, woohoo, me, self-loathing, oh, me, are both utterly fixated on self. And that's pride. And so to try and heal arrogance by hating yourself is simply to change your flavor of pride. It isn't to be cured of it. I want to ask you, have you in the name of humility become the sort of Christian who fixates all the time on how bad you are. There is a sense, I want to just be careful here, there is a sense in which it's right to have anguish about what you're like. You know, Paul says, doesn't he, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? He looks in, and when he takes an honest look inside, he kind of cringes, and there's an appropriateness about that. But Tim Keller, I think, very helpfully says this, humility is not thinking less of myself humility is thinking of myself less do you see how that's just subtly different that you become the sort of person and doesn't planet earth need this right now who genuinely isn't thinking about yourself where well, you're not wound licking all the time or press releasing on social media all the time but you're just about the world and god <laughs> That's just who you're consumed with now. Doesn't the world need people like that who say genuinely with John the Baptist, I must become less. Not I'm the worst. I just must shrink into the background now. And he is everything. So if you struggle, and I know this is easy to chuck out in a talk, isn't it? If you really struggle with self-hatred and your thought patterns get at you all the time, how do you move forward? how can you see freedom you need to fixate yourself on god that is the only antidote to self-loathing you fixate yourself on god you know our culture when someone self-loathes they go no you're great come on get your self-esteem up come on mate no you're brilliant you can do anything you're the best Now, someone who's stuck in self loathing spots how ridiculously shallow and candy floss like that advice is because they know what they're really like. Self help, bit of a boost, it's not going to do it. You need something bigger and better to live for, something that takes your attention off even your worst flaws. You need a God sized thing to fixate on. If you fixate on your flaws all the time, look at God. Let me give you a bit of advice I've found. It's a bit of a cheat to reading the Bible. When I need to get my eyes off myself, open any chapter one of a letter in the New Testament. And pretty much any chapter one of a letter in the New Testament is flooded with God did this, God is like this, he did this for you, he came into the world and he was born in a shed and then he died on a cross for you. And it's flooded sentence after sentence with not... Come on, Rich, you know, you're great, really. But God's saturated words get into the the Bible and look at his eternal nature, his infinite mind, his incredible depths to which he went, the phenomenal heights to which he went back, his, his words, the sword coming out of his mouth, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his sovereignty, that he rules everything, that he comes close and speaks tenderly to you. Get your mind, fit. There is, you'll never run out of things to look at in God. You'll never run out of things to look at in God. He's eternal. He's infinite. And if you are bored with God, that when I am bored with God, that says more about me than it does about God. It says more about my capacity to wonder than it does about how much good stuff there is in him. There's always more to look at in God. Fixate yourself on God. Robert Murray McShane, who's an old Scottish preacher, God bless the Scottish, said this, for every one look at yourself, which you must do as a Christian, you you have to to self-analyse every now and again. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ, he said. That's what life's about. That's what Christianity is. That's what the Christian life is. It's not I'm the worst. It's he's the best. We must have it like that. And so when you come to church, particularly when you hate yourself for how you've been in the last week, that is the time to worship. That is the time to sing the truths. Because it isn't for the goodies, it's for people who need their eyes lifting. So fight to sing songs of worship, even especially when you don't feel it. That is the only cure for self-loathing self-fixation, God-fixation. Take 10 looks at Jesus. It's why I love, I'm just ranting now, but um, it's why I love, I have the privilege of, of working, being employed by our church, and that means I get to go to a, a staff prayer meeting every Tuesday morning. I promise you the things you're doing are more fun on that Tuesday morning, but one of the things I love about that Tuesday morning is Jonathan Bell, who leads our church, he says the same sentence at the start of the prayer meeting every time. And it annoys me. I'm like, come on, be creative. Come on, change it up. And what he says is, can we just start speaking out things that we appreciate about God? Can we, maybe some of you have had the pleasure to pray with Jonathan. Can we, can we, just, uh, can we just start speaking out things that we, we appreciate about God, things that we're grateful for about him? And part of me is like, oh, here we go again. Do you know what? That is the kindest, most powerful thing anyone can tell me to do in the world to use my mouth to speak out things about the greatness of God. When I'm just off my bad Sunday and I feel bad about it, I've had my Monday feeling all depressed, someone would tell me, say something positive about the Lord, Rich. Come on. And so when any worship leader tells you, can you just start saying things? You be grateful for that person. They are helping your soul. They are healing your soul as they get your eyes up. Now, three minutes to go. How do you know if you're arrogant? Probably when you rant and don't do what's on your nose. So things to think about. But here we go. Third flavor of pride. And then we'll be done. Uh, We've had arrogant self-assessment. We've had self-loathing. And now I want to talk about self-reliance. Those of us who are British, which uh, hopefully and gloriously is not all of us, but those of us who are British might well associate with the phrase, keep calm and carry on. You heard about this? So keep calm and carry on, and if, uh, if you've ever been a tourist to our nation, you will have likely a key ring, a cup, a towel, a tea towel, a bag, a crown, with keep calm and carry on on it. It's this British idea of this stiff upper lip where it's been raining for eight years. Who cares? Keep calm, carry on, just keep going. And there's a sense in which that's a useful bit of life advice, but do you know what? The Christian life is not meant to be keep calm and carry on. There is an infinitely better way to live. We're not meant to just churn out another day and just keep calm and carry on and just plod. We're not meant to live like that. There are times when we have to. We're not meant to live like that, there's a better way. You can't fit it on a key ring, but I would suggest that a better way to live is not keep calm and carry on, but when you're anxious, which you are loads, comma, stop and pray and lean into the creator of heaven and earth who has power and grace available to you for everything you're doing today, for looking after your kids, for going to work, for caring for an elderly relative. You don't have to keep calm and carry on. You can stop and you can have my power at work in you. Full stop. Doesn't fit on a key ring. Doesn't fit on a tea towel. But that's what Christianity invites you to. And yet we so often think that it's virtuous in Christianity to just keep calm and carry on. Just going to keep my head down and churn out another year. Do you know what? If you're struggling, don't keep calm and carry on. Stop and ask for help. Now, how do you know if you struggle with this? Uh, three quick suggestions. As I said, firstly, you know if you struggle with self-reliance, if you struggle to ask for help. You know, my marriage is breaking down. I've struggled with the same sin pattern for eight years. But at some point, I'll just figure it out. I'll just figure it out. I'll just keep calm and carry on, don't (laughs) like stop and ask for help. Second thing, you struggle to rest. I think Jonathan preached on this uh, this summer. You might have been here. You know, people who keep calm and carry on endlessly burn out and die really young. There is a time when you're meant to not keep calm and carry on, but keep calm and stop and turn your phone off and go to bed. And get a nap. Those who keep calm and carry on rev the engine relentlessly, relentlessly. And there are times where you need to go into the red zone on the engine, where there's deadlines. You've got to stay late. There's times like that. Life is not meant to be in the red zone. If you struggle, to, struggle to rest. Maybe you're self-reliant. Maybe I'm self-reliant. And then, and I'm coming for you here. If you feel thoroughly unconvicted so far. You struggle with self reliance if you're prayerless. If I'm prayerless. We think we're fine doing life on our own. And we think, because we're arrogant, that we can handle the day's tasks. Do you know what? There's a better way to live. We can call on God. So, quickly, how do you grow if this is your thing? Um, firstly, I want to encourage you to reflect on your utter dependence on God. Everybody take a breath for me. Everybody breathe it out. Do it again. Breathe it out. That is actively given to you by heaven. You are not self-reliant, even if you pretend you are. (laughs) You are dependent. In a sense, it, it doesn't make sense to say, be more dependent on God. You're utterly dependent on God already. It's just whether you kick against it like a child or whether you embrace it. Like a child of God. You are dependent. So just reflect on that. You're you're dust. I'm dust. To dust I will return. How do I think I can do a day on my own? I'm dust. (laughs) Second thing, invite others to help. I've said this already. Invite others to help. Can I just say that loudly and underline it again? Invite others to help. Some of you, that's the only thing you need to hear. Invite others to help. Proverbs. 12 says this, the wise listen to others. Is that what you need to take from this? <sighs> to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, I need to say to someone, could you just give me a hand here? I'm stuck. And lastly, pray. There's that amazing verse in the Old Testament, which someone will know where it's from. Um, I don't, but where it says, uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Humility and prayer go together. If my people will humble themselves and pray. Do you want to be a humble person? Get on your knees and say, God, I am absolutely refusing to go anywhere without you. I need you. I confess my weakness to you. I lean in and I say, I am absolutely powerless to look after my children today if you don't help me. And I have not got a hour and a half to have a a praying in tongues Bethel fest but I quickly am going to lean in and say I need your help I'm weak can you help me please pray We need to be a people of prayer